One of the strangest things that you'll encounter when you start reading the Bible is this weird idea that the God who created the universe seems to be at war with stone and bronze and gold idols of all things. And to make matters worse, they seem to be at war over land. And I don't know about you, Alex, but that's not something that has really ever made sense to me. So on this episode of the podcast, we are going to be talking about this idea that the gods in the Bible, that the people of Israel and, and the God of the Hebrews were always warring against, are actually real. Yes, that is a great introduction. And as you are saying that, it made me think of the last airbender for some reason. And I just think it's such a the elements fighting against each other. It almost seems, yeah. again, very strange. And it is indeed strange to add along with that and just expand on it, how you'll read passages where God will be angry over the idols. Or you're right, it involves land and these people worshiping this certain idol. And why is God actually so angry with them? And how come these idols have so much power over all these people that we had thought they made. And so, yeah, very, very interesting indeed, Steve. Like even the apostle Paul in Acts 17 talks about gods that were made with hands and mm. the one true God was not made with hands. Mm. So are we to believe that these people truly followed gods and worshiped idols that they knew that they had crafted from their own bare hands? And well, of course, there's a lot more to the story than that. So before we get into all of that, let's zoom out mm -hmm. 30,000 feet and discuss what we're talking about here. So the gods in the Bible are real. This is what Dr. Michael Heiser calls the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, or it's also very commonly known as the Divine Council worldview. And he wrote about these. He's been writing about them in authority on the subject for a long time, but he wrote about them in his 2015 book, The Unseen Realm, which gained a lot of popularity. And I know Dr. Heiser's work, we talked about this a little bit in the intro specifically, but Dr. Heiser's work was very influential for me. And I know by proxy, it has also been very influential to Alex as well, because I introduced him to it. And then he read The Unseen Realm. And it's just been a very interesting thing. I've spent at this point, hundreds of hours with Dr. Heiser's content, maybe thousands, I don't know, at least hundreds in books and listening to podcasts and just time. I've even got to ask him a few questions before. So um, really interesting ideas that he had. And I don't agree with everything that Dr. Michael Heiser says. This is not a Dr. Michael Heiser fanboy podcast, but it would be ignorant of us to, to just brush over how big of an impact he's had on, on both of our lives, really. Yeah, agreed. And it's funny from my men's mindset, I always go back to the kind of fictional worldview that I have growing up reading Lord of the Rings and everything. And it, and I think that's probably why growing up and whether it's through a sermon or just my own devotionals, reading through, again, specifically the Old Testament, even the New Testament, glancing over things that I should have been reading with excitement with that fictional yeah. and, and excited mind that I have, because all of those things, God just doesn't get angry at an idol because it's wood and people are worshiping it. Um, but there's more to it. And again, that I think it's a great topic for us to get started on. Because when it is so interesting, it does fill in a lot of pieces, but it tells you a lot more too on, honestly, like the living situation that God is in, what he has placed around himself and how he operates. And so I think it's a, a great topic for us to get into first. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally agree. This will set the the stage. And those of you who are listening to this podcast and thinking, oh, these are my people. That was the point, right? <laughs> this episode is very much to help understand at least one part of how we're approaching the Bible. This podcast is not aimed to be a replacement for the work of Dr. Heiser. If you don't know, he passed away this year or this past year from pancreatic cancer, and he's left a huge impact and a huge legacy. Uh, but our goal here is to extend on some of the work that he did, but even to go beyond that and, and just to look at, uh, take his really his maxim of if it's weird, it's important. If it's strange, it's important. And look at the entire Bible through that lens and pull out the important stuff by diving into the strange stuff. And it, it really, for me, it doesn't get any stranger than this notion that these false idols that were being worshipped by the Hebrew people all throughout scripture were real mm. in a very real sense, in the most real sense, in, in the sense of there is a spiritual reality. And there's actually a essay that Dr. Heiser wrote called the nature of idolatry in the Bible that sort of elucidates this and makes it clear to understand how it worked. But basically the actual idols, the statues themselves, were merely a, a vehicle of sorts, a, a way of communicating that with the spiritual world that the gods would essentially inhabit. It was like a temporary dwelling place for them that they could worship these gods through. And, and you're already listening and you're saying, Steve, this is crazy talk. There's no, that can't happen. And I would just ask you again to reconsider what kind of worldview you truly have. Do you mm. really have the spiritual worldview of the Bible or do you have the modern Western logical version of the Christian worldview where we can believe in creation and we can believe in resurrections, but we don't believe in any of the other strange stuff. And just to put a bookend on that, if divination was impossible, if contacting the dead and contacting other spirits was impossible, then why are the Hebrews all throughout the Bible warned and told, commanded by God, not to do it. God's not in the habit of commanding people not to do things that weren't possible for them to do. So it's a very real spiritual problem that was being confronted by the ancient Hebrew people. And that's the that seems to be the reality of the situation and makes sense of a lot of passages that otherwise seem very strange. Absolutely. And I think just maybe ease into it even a little bit more before we get into the oddities of this. Think about, for some reason, we when we read the New Testament, specifically the Gospels, we find it very normal that demons are around in that time. And not really focusing on the specific term demons, but just spiritual forces and evil forces that Jesus cast out of pigs or that he confronted or that his disciples confronted. And for some reason, we find that very normal because Jesus was around. Yet we tend to shy away from it when things creep up like that in the Old Testament or further on in the New Testament or even today when we hear people talk about certain things. And so I think that if we start with some people just to get your your get your toes a little wet, branch out from recognizing that, yes, Jesus did deal with evil forces like that. But if that's the case, wouldn't it make sense, too, that there's always been a struggle between spiritual forces forever and that there are spiritual beings that exist just beyond what is contained in that the four Gospels? Maybe that's just a kind of jumping off point that I thought of. Try to take that easiness of believing and reading those things and taking it as is when you read the Gospels and just spreading your imagination into elsewhere. 
That's a really good point. And, and to be honest, we can go even further than that. I, I think unless you are a materialistic naturalist listening to this podcast, which you're probably not, then surely you recognize the world is more spiritual and more supernatural than a lot of people give it credit for, right? You know that the reality of sin, the, the reality of the fact that people are motivated by unseen spiritual forces. You, even the Apostle Paul said that another human is never our enemy. Our other enemies mm. are principalities and powers and spiritual darkness and rulers in, in high places. And so these this sort of language is all talking about this unseen spiritual world all around us. Think about why we connect so deeply with superhero movies and books that talk about supernatural things and maybe even paranormal things. It's because I think deep down we realize that this stuff is real and it's true. And something that the biblical writers knew about was that it was dangerous and that we mm. should stay away from it at all costs. And not only that it was dangerous, but they knew the answer for it essentially. And that's, it was a big part of God's instruction to them all throughout the old Testament and throughout the New Testament as well, but you might have never realized it before or seen it before because you're thinking of these idols as being statues when really the spiritual reality behind them is so much deeper than that. And just coming to that realization opens up the door to just to a lot to recognize a lot of things that happened specifically in the Old Testament when it came to the worshiping and the creating of idols. Great, Steve. Yeah, let's get yeah. into it. Yeah, so let's talk about this idea of, of essentially God versus the nations. When we actually look at, especially the Old Testament, it becomes clear that you have this supernatural war happening. It starts at the Tower of Babel, right? Surely you've made the connection that Babel or Babel, depending on how you pronounce it, is the same word essentially as Babylon, right? Like surely that, that has crossed your mind before. And if it hasn't, then maybe it just has. And you're thinking <laughs> about this for the first time, right? Boom, like, oh, mind blown, right? So you've got these ancient people groups who seem to always be at war with Israel. Babylon and Assyria are two of the very obvious ones. But as you go back, you have, you know, essentially Media Persia, you have Mesopotamia, you have all these other, the Canaanites, which are, are of course made up with, with various different people groups. And what you always find, like in Joshua, the Canaanite conquest, for example, you, you always seem to find this battle going on between God's people and their neighbors in the ancient Near Eastern world. And it's real easy, again, in our sort of enlightenment, post-enlightenment, westernized mindset, it's easy to look at that as just that's what ancient people did. They fought over land. And it's beyond that. It's more than just land. And what it really comes down to is something that we find, you've probably never, again, made this connection before, or maybe you have if you're familiar with this worldview. But if you haven't, I bet you've never read Deuteronomy 32, seven through nine and really just slowed down and read what the text said <laughs> and considered it. And when you do that, I think it will start opening up some channels of thought for you. Alex, would you mind reading that? I've got that yeah. wrote down right here. I'll go ahead and read it. And I'll also encourage anyone to read that whole chapter because the whole chapter is great too. It's but phenomenal. we're just reading, yes. it's a great chapter. We're just reading uh, seven through nine. Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, 
Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling wastes of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Very good. So actually, we might have got a little bit of uh, verse 10 in there. But but yeah, yeah. So basically, Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 9. So there are some clues in that text as to the time period that is being talked about. Now, I will just say this, depending on what translation, what Bible version you're reading, it may, in verse, I think eight it is, it may say the sons of Israel instead of the sons of God. There's a reason for that goes well beyond the scope of what we can actually discuss in this podcast. We'll tackle Suffice it at some it, point. Yeah, we will tackle it. Suffice it to say, we were reading from the ESV version, and I think the correct translation for very contextual reasons is the sons of God. So as you consider just what this text is saying, you got a few things going on. Okay, you remember the days of old and the years of many generations. Okay, immediately the days of old and the years of many generations, that seems to very clearly be talking about around the time of the flood, the pre-flood, and after the time of the flood. When people, what does many generations mean? Again, that's those are words. We read the words many generations and we think, I don't know, lots of people, right? We, we're just skimming through and we're not thinking. No, many generations means people lived for a long time, mm-hmm. okay, right? Consider the years when people lived for a long time. Ask your father and he'll show you, your elders, and they'll tell you, okay? And then when the Most High, who's the Most High, right? You're reading the Bible, and so the Most High is God. But even there, you have to stop, and you start thinking, well, wait a minute. The Most The Most High. high. What does that mean? Why is, it is- again, we've... Go ahead. Is is just is one thing to say the high or God or uh, the high or the Almighty, God, but or, yeah, but the Most High. So I, it's been a while since I've been in school, but I think most is the superlative there. <laughs> so sounds uh, right. Sure, I, th- we'll I think that's right. So yeah, there's a reason why it's Most High. Right. Yeah. Most high implies that there are others who are also high, but they're not most, right? They're not the most high. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And so he gave to the nations their inheritance. Now, what in the world, what in the world is that talking about? He gave to the nations their inheritance. It goes on to explain when he divided, this is another contextual clue, when he divided mankind, Okay. When did he divide mankind? After the flood in the days of Peleg. Okay. That's when that happened. He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Okay. That's the clue right there. The borders of the people. So in the days of Peleg, when the earth was divided, what happened during that division? It was the dispersal of the Tower of Babel, right? At the Tower of Babel, this is when the boundary lines of the nations were drawn. These people groups were scattered. If you study the Tower of of Babel event at all, you realize this is not simply God confusing their languages. That was part of it. But it was a very cultural thing. Hmm. It was God spreading these people out across the earth, dividing up their borders. And when that happened, he fixed the borders of the people, and he did so according to the number of the sons of God. What are the sons of God? You first are introduced to these characters. 
in Genesis 6. And this is another thing on which scholars have hotly debated for centuries and centuries. I think it's very clear as you actually read the biblical text that the sons of God is always referring to divine beings, spiritual beings of some sort. And so the long story short, and we're not connecting all the threads here, but the long story short is that we seem to have this scenario where at the Tower of Babel, God not only confused the languages, God not only separated out these nations, but he seems to have given control of the surrounding nations to some sort of spiritual being. So we read the story of, of Babel and we just take for granted, it just seems to happen immediately that the Canaanites are at war with the Israelites and then th this nation is fighting with this nation and we tend to skim over it. And maybe that is just something simple that we can read through, but just by understanding this portion here gives us insight into what those other cultures are going through that they have been purposely divided and are being led according to the division from the sons of God, according to their number. And it just gives you a, a such a huge perspective on it's not just these people fighting these people, but the spiritual struggle going on through the entirety of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So as we're looking at this, and there's lots of other clues in the text, by the way, like if, if you're sitting here reading this and you're thinking, okay, maybe I can see that, but this seems like pretty scant evidence. Buckle up, buttercup. We're not going to be able to cover it all here. We'll talk about a little more. Um, but there's a couple book recommendations that by the end, uh, we will certainly give you. And so we continue on to verse nine. It says, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Okay. Again, in case you, for some reason, think that the borders of the people and the number of the sons of God, in case you happen to think that that's not what's going on there, verse nine dispels all of that confusion by clarifying that the Lord's portion, whom the Lord separated out for himself, was Israel. And so what you've got here is, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in, in a moment, but what you've got here is this, essentially this third try, if you will, that God gives humanity a chance at the Tower of Babel. And then they essentially build, the tower is essentially a ziggurat, which is an ancient sort of uh, temple structure that the gods would be invited into so that you could interface with these spiritual beings. Okay. Again, very well known in ancient Near Eastern literature. This is exactly what a ziggurat was. And God said, no, that's not how this works. Like you don't get to worship you know, me or other spiritual beings on, on your terms, you're going to do this the way that I said. And so God confuses the languages, spreads out the people and disinherits mm -hmm. the other nations of the world and supernaturally creates for himself a people out of Abraham by again, because Sarah and Abraham were old, they were barren and he supernaturally creates for himself. He selects out Abraham and Sarah and through them, decides to create a nation and kicks off the redemption story that we know and love so much. But you got to remember, the first couple thousand years of biblical history was not God dealing with Israel. It was God dealing with all of humanity. And there came a point in time when God said, okay, I've had it. That's enough. We're going to do this other plan. We're going to use the children of Israel. And if you look at Romans Man, Paul talks all about this in Galatians and Romans, and it's just so crazy to see him tie all the logic together of how you had to go through Israel to bring the Gentiles back into the fold and how it's this whole <clears> big plan 
But ironically, it all started with God disinheriting the nations, putting them in charge of these lesser gods, these underlings, if you will. Now, one question that comes up here a lot is, who? what is the nature of these spiritual beings? And were they bad guys? Were they good guys? What's up with that? Uh, there are some clues that they were good guys. I think mm -hmm. the, the, the text doesn't say either way, whether they were uh, already corrupted at the point that they were disinherited or whether they were good at the time that they were that the other nations were disinherited. I think that there's an argument that can be made that they were good. That would come specifically from Psalm 82 is where I would pull that from. But it seems to be what we have happening here is that God gave control of these other nations into the hands of these spiritual beings. And, and that's that one thing I want to talk about. I'm going to let you comment there, but one thing I want to make sure we talk about is like the hierarchy of, of spiritual beings. Can we go into that now real quick? Or do you have a thought yeah. you wanted to share? I think the only thing that I wanted to share is because you, you said it, um, but I also just, I just want to rehash the importance of it is again, we tend to focus on, we see that, but Jesus dying on the cross, then Christianity spread and it went not just to the Jews, but the Gentiles also, mm -hmm. but from the beginning, it, God gave the opportunity to everyone and then until they didn't want it. And then that's when his plan came into to create a people for that purpose. And so we can't know people say, why can't he just why couldn't he just made all the people his people? And there's certain things, obviously, that we just don't know why God does certain things. But mm -hmm. it's just interesting seeing his plan come full circle over thousands of years where the people just continued rebel, continued rebel, didn't want to do their own thing. And then finally God said, okay, I'm just going to do my own thing with these people, and this is how it's going to come through. And then he brings it mm -hmm. to the world again through Jesus. And it's just a great story arc there. I just wanted to point that out. So I'm glad you pointed that out because I've been thinking about this a lot <clears throat> lately. So Alex and I are actually both very obsessed with the idea of story and storytelling. We're both writers, me a little bit more on the nonfiction side, him on the fiction side. And storytelling is something that has really always fascinated us. And uh, there's a Christian philosopher, goes by the name of Josh Rasmussen, and he's got some books out there, How Reason Can Lead to God and, and some other ones. And I heard him share some thoughts recently that from a philosophical standpoint, tie into something I've been thinking about. And so he's been thinking about this idea of progress, how, at least for humans, because of how humans seem to be wired and, and, and the way that we can think and having a rational mind and, and an emotional center of our being, just the very nature of personhood itself is that progress and development is actually fundamental to the way that we understand things. And, and so like people always ask the question of why Adam and Eve in a garden and like why why a forbidden fruit and like why all this? And I think there's an argument. You could actually pull some places from the text. I've been working on developing this. I think you can create a sort of story argument for the, for the biblical story, for the Christian worldview. I think it's quite possible that humans would not actually come to God if not for the story. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually necessary that reality is arranged in a story so that we can come to know God because that is how we experience life and that is how we know things. And so there's a lot there to that, but the progress, there's one thing you learn on day one when it comes to telling a story is that your story has to go somewhere. You have to have progress in your story. And I think that there's a very good argument for saying that the, the story itself is actually necessary. And, and so the, all of this fits into the larger story. So I think that was a great point. It, it makes sense because humans, we just, we love stories.
I know yeah. there might be a few who don't, but that's that we gravitate towards stories and we share stories, stories together are how we and, take action. Yeah, it's yeah. how we see our need for tension that has to be resolved ultimately. Yep, so it just makes sense that we experience worldview in, in the form of a story, of a great story. For sure. So, okay, one of the things that might be a little confusing at this point is, okay, Steve, I'm hearing you out. I get it. I've heard of angels and demons. Does this have anything <laughs> to do with that? And the answer is yes. More than you realize and also less mm. than you realize. Without going all into it, actually, Dr. Heiser has written two specific separate books, one called Angels and one called Demons. Let's go into this. But the simplified version of this is that there's actually a hierarchy. Okay. And, and when you look at the Bible and, and you stop thinking about uh, God and sort of this, uh, the, the structure of, of reality that he's created, if you stop thinking about God as just like a, a, a being – and you start thinking about everything in terms of kingship and in terms mm. of dominion and in terms of royalty, which is exactly how the biblical storyline is presented. You have you start seeing things that make a lot more sense. For example, there are different categories there seems to be in different roles and hierarchies of spiritual beings in the Bible. You have angels. The word angel just simply means messenger. Okay. And so you have people who play. Uh, roles in the Bible. There's a role called the adversary mm -hmm. uh, teaser for a later episode, which is yes, Satan, right? Satan, Satan. That's the role called the adversary. You have a role called the destroyer. You have these, what seem to be the heavenly host. You have these council members. You have what are called princes. Okay. There's a prince of Israel who fights the prince of Persia in mm. the book of Daniel. Okay. And again, these are territorial entities right terms of territorial spiritual beings that are assigned to different things so some people you have it is their job to be a messenger some people it is their job to essentially destroy things on behalf of god some people their role is to be in the council uh, of god not that god needs their um advice it's not really about having their advice it, it's it's about having god participating in the same way that he does with humans with the spiritual world and you, you do have these roles in, in this hierarchy uh, of person that is referred to as a, as a son of God or being in the divine council or the divine assembly that was put in charge of the nations. And we learn about this in Deuteronomy 32. At least it explains it a little bit more clearly and transparently than what we actually find in Genesis 11, the account of Babel itself. So again, these are all things that would have been apparent to people living during the time when the Bible was written. This was basic stuff for them. We're only now starting to understand it more and, and rediscover it, even though this thinking has been in the scholarship for quite some time, and it's only started in the last really decade or so, making it to the years of uh, popular churchgoers. So. And it's, again, we tend to normalize things so easily. Like we were saying, we've all heard of angels and demons. And that's typically what we think of is there's angels, followers of God, and then there's demons, followers of Lucifer. And we don't even really think about the angels too much. We just think, okay, there's angels out there. And if it seems weird to think that it's a little bit more than that, that there's hierarchies, why would God want to create these beings? Why would he even use them? Did they even, like, why would it make sense for them to interact with humans? And again, that kind of... It goes to the, the basic understanding that people in the ancient world had and just an understanding of why can't it be, I guess you can call it supernatural like that. Again, we live in a supernatural, if you're a Christian, a supernatural world and universe where God uh, literally takes the form of a man, dies for us, 
so that we can live with him. That's the ultimate. And why is it not in his, to use a, a kingly term, jurisdiction to create other beings aside from humans or different, even if you want to categorize them all as angels, certain different types of angels, like we said, the messenger, the destroyer to carry out his mm -hmm. bidding or heck to let them do their own bidding from time to time. It, unless yeah. you were a determinist, he gives humans free will. Right. Why can't he give other beings free will to, to do what, to do what they want? So yeah, it's sure. just, it might seem strange at first, but God is God and we live in a pretty wild world where God dies for us to save us. So I think anything yeah. goes that he wants to. That's no, that it's a really great point. And, and what happens when you lose this, right? When you lose what you're talking about is you now are left with those missing puzzle pieces I was talking about that make it really difficult for us to understand what's happening in certain situations in the Bible. For example, when you have Pharaoh's magicians able to mm -hmm. essentially copy everything that Moses and Aaron are throwing at Pharaoh saying, Oh, my magicians can do that too. And then they do it. Okay. What, where did that power come from? Mm -hmm. Are we just going to ignore that and pretend like that power doesn't exist? Where did they get that power to be able to do what Moses and Aaron were doing? Okay, they were against God. So for one to argue, oh, God gave them that power too. Now you just ended up in this really weird situation with God fighting against himself to prove a point that doesn't even make any sense. Like, why would you do that? Okay. You have other scenarios where, like 1 Kings 22, where you have a spiritual being who uh, volunteers to basically go lie to, I think it's King Ahab, and, and be a lying spirit in the mouth of, of the prophets of King Ahab. And it's like, what, like, why would God do that? Or look at Job, right? Let's talk about Job mm -hmm. again. Where you've got this figure, the Pasatan, the Satan, or Satan, however you want to think about him. And you've got this sort of weird scenario where he has the power because God didn't say, oh, I see what you're saying. Let me handle Job. God mm -hmm. said, no, you have the power, right, to go out. He's in your hands. So somehow this spiritual being, whether it's Satan with a capital S or just this position called the Satan or the adversary, whichever it was, has the power to actually do things on behalf of God. And yet it's not God, but it's clearly not an angel in the sense of a, a messenger. Okay. It's clearly not that. So it goes beyond that. The spiritual world is layered. And when you ignore that, you start to have what, what has basically happened in the modern church, which basically started taking root in the 300s or so AD. You, you started to have people who, who started approaching the text with a more philosophical and more rational mm. point. And frankly, they were embarrassed by some of the supernatural teaching in the Bible. And this is where they began throwing out some of that ultra weird stuff. And it's okay, we can accept a resurrection, we can accept creation and all of that stuff because we have to. But all this <laughs> other stuff, let's find some more benign explanations for. And we don't have time to go all into that, but this was well documented in Tim Chafee's book, Fallen. It's like a 500-page book that he spent like many years writing. And it's a fantastic book that talks about a lot of what we're talking about here, but it goes into sort of the historical development of some of these ideas and actually how some of these ideas were lost over time. And this is actually very clearly documented. So if you think I'm just a nut, uh, you know, nutcase, consider reading Tim Chafee's book Fallen and it will answer a lot of those questions. But a lot of this stuff gets kicked out because it's too weird. And then 
when you have the reformers come along, they doubled down on this stuff. They mm. doubled down on the idea that some of this stuff was just too weird and that they really were hinting more at the sovereignty of God and creation. And then now for hundreds of years, our focus has been more on the Reformation versus the Catholic Church than actually understanding what the text of Scripture says. <laughs> and that's a crying shame. I, I think you summed that up very, very nicely there. It, it really is a shame because— uh, Again, with, however you think creation came about, God created all of this, and that's the single greatest creation to to kick off the universe to begin with. Why can't he have, yeah, spiritual beings that that behave and act according to their own? In fact, it seems so minor, and it, it's sad that me guilty too, growing up, just reading all of these parts, like what you said about about Pharaoh's uh, servants or magicians being able to do their magic, and we just skip over it and we think. Oh, it's either demons working or it's this. And we don't mm -hmm. think about it. But just by, I know that we've thrown out a lot of examples and we're going to be talking about some of these and dedicate a specific depth, episode yeah. to these things. But I think the main thing is just by understanding, okay, if you can grasp your mind around that there are spiritual beings, references as the sons of God, and they take on such a task as and the like. If you just recognize that, okay, there are beings out there that God actually did create, to act according to their own or to follow God's orders at times. And if you just know that they are involved in scripture and, and in the world, that just makes you, when you come across those pack um, passages in scripture to question it um, and, and really say, okay, so this looks like there's actually something spiritual going on here. There's a purpose behind it, or there's a meaning. It's not just something that glance over gloss over. It makes sense because there's, that Correct. actually is the worldview that we live in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and any one of those individual pieces will lead to understanding different things in different places. For example, mm -hmm. once you understand that you have this phrase, the sons of God in the Old Testament, and in Job there is Hebrew parallelism going on, which is poetry, and, and there's language that basically ties the sons of God to the morning stars, which rejoiced, together and sang at the foundation of the world with God. Okay. So <laughs> what is the, what is that? The sons of God, but does God have sons? Like, how does that work? What are the, so sons of God, stars, spiritual beings, they obviously like were able to rejoice and they were able to sing. It's not just some figurative thing, right? Like it, it, it's real, it's reality. And so then you say, oh, I've got the same phrase, the sons of God. That's in Genesis 6. So whatever those are, they're maybe mm. somehow related to those things. And you start creating some of those connections together. And it allows you to create a mosaic in your mind of what's happening when you're reading the Bible. And understanding that it's one of the ways that the biblical writers, Tim Mackey and them at the Bible Project, they use this term hyperlinking, right? It's a term we all understand from using the internet. When biblical mm. writers wrote, they did this they had this practice, which essentially amounts to modern day hyperlinking, which they can use certain terms and, and phrases and, and words that connect the reader back to certain other ideas that they want them mm. to recall. And this kind of thing is happening all over scripture. And just one classic example of this to help you understand what I'm talking about is when Jesus is on the cross and he says, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay. That's not a phrase mm. taken in isolation, okay? He was quoting Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is this epic messianic psalm that seems to describe exactly the offense of crucifixion. The problem is it was written a thousand years before crucifixion had taken place mm. and was even invented, okay? So 
when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in front of an audience full of Jewish people and Romans, but also mm -hmm. Jewish people, he didn't have a, you know, a, a necessarily a metric for saying, oh, go to Psalm 22, like chapters and <laughs> verses and all of that stuff. Like, right. That's how we think about the Bible now, but those were introduced to way later. Okay. In the biblical world, like in, in that time, if you cited the opening verse of a chapter, the the Jews in, in the audience would know the chapter you were talking about because mm -hmm. they've been memorizing it from birth. And so they would understand the minute he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is how Psalm 22 starts. It would immediately click in their mind. All of that other logic from that passage mm -hmm. that Jesus was applying to himself. That's how hyperlinking works. It's a very obvious example, but it happens in a lot more subtle ways in the text as well. And so that allows you to make these connections together with these different, with these different ideas. That, yeah, so, that's excellent. So speaking of that, let's kind of zoom out again and talk about um, sort of the bigger picture here. So in scripture, we have, if you were to ask like a modern person, a modern Christian, why is the world so screwed up? If you were to ask them that question, they would answer the Genesis three, the fall of man, Adam and Eve eat the apple or whatever kind of fruit it was. And here we are puzzling them that besides that reference in the old testament in the entire old testament adam is only mentioned like one or two other times mm. and it's like why right if this is such a big deal if this one event was so instrumental in tossing the entire world into chaos why is it only talked about very sparsely and the reason is because that if you were to ask an ancient Hebrew person the same question, you would get three answers uh, because there were actually three big rebellions, three big events that are responsible for sort of the proliferation, uh, the entrance and proliferation of sin into the world. And that is the fall uh, with Adam and Eve in the beginning. That is also the events directly leading up to the flood, which is in Genesis 6, where you have the sons of God and the daughters of men essentially coming mm -hmm. together to create these Nephilim creatures, which is just wild. <laughs> these basically yes. human angel hybrid things. What's up with that? Again, this was definitely without question the view of the early church. Mm. Other views are not even considered until the 300s AD and after. Okay, So this was definitely the view of the early church and seems to make the most sense of the biblical data. And then you had the Genesis 11 event, which is the Tower of, of Babel. So all three of these rebellions and, and events, you had this, this entrance and, and proliferation of sin in, into the world. And the second event, Genesis 6, is one of the ones that, again, it's caused a lot of controversy and a lot of stuff in biblical circles. But if you really start to understand the context, especially the Mesopotamian context behind that event, you get a window into just why the world was so bad and so corrupt that the entire earth had to be flooded in order to uh, fix the problem. And when you, one of the things that comes up a lot in this uh, discussion is the idea of giants. Okay. And so what I want to encourage you to do is think about when, when you're placing your mind, when you're reading it in the Bible and, and you're looking at the, the context of Israel versus the other nations, I want you to think about how many times they seem to be referencing mm. these giant clans. And the giant clans are the Anakim, the Nephilim, the Zanzamim, and there was a couple others, I believe, the Rephaim. 
And so these are all, again, words that hyperlink to other things and other ideas. In Genesis 11, you have the appearance of the Nephilim. It says that the mm. Nephilim were there in those days. And also after that, who was it that the Israelites were scared of that first time when they were trying to enter into, into the promised land? They said, there's Nephilim in there. The giants mm. are over there. Like, we're scared of them, right? And so um, the there has been a war going on in the Old Testament God versus the gods of the other nations who, again, it seems to be the remnants of the giant clans that God is tasking his people to destroy and eradicate. And these giant clans seem to have originated with this angel-human hybrid thing going on in Genesis 6. And you're like, that's weird. And I'm like, I know, and I'm here for it. That's why we're talking about this stuff, because it helps us to understand what God is doing all throughout history. And rather than run away from this weird stuff, we're just going to dive headfirst into it. And that's why the podcast is called My Strange Bible, not My uh, Very Normal Bible. (laughs) And what you said is very important, though. I know this is such a high-level overview that mostly Steve is presenting, but to get that overview can at least, then you can understand why when we dig into these specific stories and instances, you'll know why. And it's because it it really does, as Steve says, hyperlink to so many other things. And there might be a a subject that we tackle, and we might not even mention something, but something might pop in your mind that because this specific instance makes sense now, then this over here in Job makes sense, or this in the New Testament makes sense, because it all really links together. And to me, that's what really clicked for me of this being the reality of the Bible, just because of how it works so well and it fits so well with what it's saying. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I have a few other things written down, but I'd like to start wrapping up here because I think we're at a good spot. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if you'd like to learn more about this sort of specific thing, then I don't think you can do much better than reading Michael Heiser's book. A, a good lay introduction to this would be Supernatural. Reading mm-hmm. that book, I think, is a great place to start. If you are into more technical reading, it's still written where lay people can understand it, mm-hmm. but it's, it is more technical in nature and it's longer. That would be Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm. So either The Unseen Realm or Supernatural are great places to start. And then Tim Chafee's book, Fallen. And one of the things that you might actually two things about Tim Chafee's book that you might appreciate. If you're coming at this and you're thinking, this sounds really weird and I am like ultra conservative. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know what's happening here. Like I'm, we I'm trying all? to give you a chance, but what in the world? Tim Chafee is literally employed right now at the Ark Encounter as the content manager, okay? So he works for Answers in Genesis. No doubt they are like some of the most conservative people you could possibly imagine. He works there, and so I don't think he would have a job if he was a liberal, okay? And by the way, Mike Kaiser was not a liberal uh, kind of person either, Mm. but Tim Chafee is definitely somebody you could look up to who is a very conservative Bible scholar who holds these views, and so I would encourage you to check out his stuff as well. And that will be very uh, helpful to you. I do want to leave you here with one other verse, okay? And this is the verse that was what Dr. Michael Heiser calls his watershed moment, where he came face-to-face with the reality of what we're talking about, that the gods of the Bible are real, and that there really is this sort of council in the heavens, the council of the heavenly hosts, where God is participating with spiritual beings. And this is Psalm 82.1. Here's what it says. Again, we're, we're reading the ESV here. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, what's interesting is that word God 
the first word, and then the word gods, the mm -hmm. second word, both of those are Elohim. And by rule of Hebrew grammar, because Elohim is a word like dear in the English language, it can be interpreted as either singular or plural. By rule of Hebrew grammar and just reading the text naturally, it's very clear that the first instance must be singular and the second instance must be plural. And the, the point that he came to is, what do we do with that? How do we deal with the reality that God, the real God, the one true God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, is sitting in the midst of these other gods and judging? And he, re, if you read Psalm 82, this is not God sitting around pointing the finger at benign right. idols. This yeah. is God actually chastising. This is, again, where I think the allotted nations that are described in Deuteronomy 32, I think that it's very possible that God gave the control of these other nations over to these other spiritual beings in a sort of delegated way, in a way where it's, okay, I'm going to delegate these guys to you and I'm going to focus all my energy on Israel, but that they were still supposed to judge these people mm -hmm. rightly and treat them with mercy and do justice to them. And very clearly they did not do that. They took the worship on their own. They allowed the people to worship them and they essentially committed the same error of pride that the original rebel Satan did. And so I think Psalm 82 is one of those passages that you're going to read it and, and it's going to be really hard to come away with an alternative explanation other than what we've discussed here. And so that's what, what I would personally want to leave you with as we close this one out. Hearing that too, it's so just recognizing that it, it seems very silly now if you take that away. So in, in, in other words, the strange kind of becomes the unstrange and what you thought was normal becomes the oddity. So if you take away all of what Steve said, let's just say like the idols were made by people, no demons, angels, sons of God, however you want to call it, were involved with that. And it's just the way it is. God sure spent a lot of time being angry at these things and commanding Israel on how to behave Correct. towards those things. And it seems very pointless and childish almost. If you take away the basic fundamental aspect that that no like these things actually were worshipped because they were real <laughs> yeah once you see it you can't unsee it that's mm -hmm. the way i like to think about it which is funny because it's the unseen realm that we're talking about but yeah once you see it you can't unsee it it's there and it makes so much logical sense it ties so much stuff together that mm -hmm. i'm just utterly convinced that it's true so mm -hmm. one thing that weird, man so strange it is the one thing i want to mention too i actually haven't read these books but i need to but you've told me about it before is it by brian godawa so he wrote he's writes i guess you can call it kind of fictional fantasy but it's based on the nephilim in genesis and so it's a it's a fictional series of books that he writes i really want to read them i haven't yet and they look really good so if you're very much fiction minded you like reading Lord of the rings or anything fantasy and you like this stuff yeah. too and it piques your interest i'm sure that's a fun series to read that i plan on at some point anyway but thought i'd bring that up yeah. for anyone who wants to read it yeah, man, he writes. I think he writes both fiction and nonfiction about the, oh, wow. about the okay. Nephilim and about the yeah, like the you know, Enoch and all that stuff. And awesome. uh, Brian was an associate of Heiser's as well. They had a podcast together with a couple other people called the Paranormal okay. Podcast. Yep. And uh, so yeah, it's all stuff that's informed by that. And again, as we move forward into other episodes of My Strange Bible, we're going to be going way beyond just this stuff. This is not mm. just a Heiser copycat podcast or something yeah. like that. But it is such a huge influence and was such the a gateway drug, if you will, into us being being able to look beyond what we thought we were seeing and into other things that we thought it deserved a whole episode of its own. And 
certainly there are going to be a lot of things that we talk about in the future that tie back into this. And so if you have this, this episode under your belt, it'll give you the context and, and help some of those things make sense. Awesome, Steve. I think this is a really fun episode. And I guess starting, we don't have the specific topic, but starting in our next episode, we'll be uh, diving into actual like specific Bible verses, specific stories. And we're gonna be taking yeah. small pieces at a time and diving into all the strange stuff that's in our Bible. So I'm really excited to to continue on. Yeah, me too. And, and there's definitely going to be some episodes where we're talking about like really big things. But my mm. goal would be that we laser focus in on one story yes. or one verse. Most of the time, and just pick out one very specific thing that seems really strange and see what's up with that. So that's where we're going. So thank you guys so much for being a subscriber, being a follower. Um, follow along on the journey with us and, uh, you know, contact us anytime. Leave comments on the YouTube videos. We would love to hear from you if this is something that you're interested in. And don't forget to tell your friends about My Strange Bible. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Later.